0: to 31. Luke 16, 19 to 31, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. There was a rich man who was, let's see, I think we got it on, try going this way. okay, this is called the elephant in the room. How do you like that for a sermon title? (laughs) There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I've been thinking about this parable ever since I was driving a beat truck last fall and challenging people, and why a good-for-nothing, sick beggar made it to heaven, and a rich man didn't. One Thursday morning, I woke up early and sat down to think about what the main point of this parable was, and this is what I came up with, and this is going to be the theme of this message. One, there is an afterlife, two, it has two destinations. And three, the scriptures are sufficient to get us to the right destination. Once, on on, uh, the afterlife, once I was listening to NPR, National Public Radio, and I heard an author talking about his mother who was nearing the end of her life, and she began to wonder what might happen when she came to the end. Uh, She had always been diligent in all matters in her life, and... uh, So she recruited her daughter to research what, if there is an afterlife. After six or seven months of work, they came up with this conclusion. The uh, the afterlife is logistically unlikely. How could a woman living in St. Louis come to that conclusion? She certainly would be aware that the Bible had a lot to say about it, And I would have looked at the Bible, but she must have brought a prejudicial view to the Bible that it was unreliable. Or the notion that it is because it's somewhat ancient literature, it isn't applicable to modern times. But if it is truly what God has spoken, then it is true for all times. Even the common phrase that we use, best friends forever, speaks to the yearning that God has put in our hearts for an afterlife let alone God's promise in in scripture, which gives us our blessed hope. Let's consider the first destination. We recently went through an election cycle. Lazarus would be of no worth to either party. He couldn't contribute, he couldn't campaign, he probably couldn't even vote. The only thing he could do was pray and believe. But that was enough for the one who searches the hearts of men who does not look on the outward appearance, but sees the heart. Lazarus's Jewish heritage acquainted him with the scriptures, and he put his hope in the God of the scriptures, and with that God was pleased and eventually took him home. Let's talk a bit about rewards in heaven, and also perhaps on earth. I was at the Gideon meeting for scripture and prayer and made a statement that sounded like I was saying, we work for the Lord to build up treasures In heaven, as if I was a mercenary, and when I got there, I could enjoy my hoard for myself. They responded with, "Oh no!" My childhood friend had an attitude, had that attitude when he foolishly said, "If the streets in heaven are really paved with gold, then I'd kill myself and go there." But the Bible is full of rewards. They who come, in Hebrews 11:6. Oh, I missed. I'm sorry. I missed that for you. I'm going the wrong way, or what? Yep. <laughs> Hebrews eleven six. <laughs> if, if, but they who come to God must believe that He is, and that He is here, He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. And Mark nine forty one. Whoever gives you a cup of water because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose his reward. Matthew six nineteen to 21 Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It's even worth it to, to give your money to the Lord to uh, lay up treasures to get your heart in the right place. That may be reward enough. In James one twelve, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. These are just a sampling of all the rewards that are in the Bible. A few weeks ago on Sunday night, we had a presentation of, of the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ. The presenter had it right. All the rewards we receive at the judgment will be will in the end be gladly laid at the feet of Jesus in worship. What do people seek riches for to spend it to bring themselves happiness, joy, exhilaration, pleasure. Certainly God can bypass the money and possessions part of that and give us those things in direct in a direct and real rather rather than in an artificial way. We are promised in thy presence there is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. I told a college acquaintance this verse, and he responded, I don't think you can have pleasure unless there's also pain. He had a limited earthly view of what God can do. If God promised it, he can surely deliver on it. Have you ever been around a celebrity who is accepting of you? Being with the Lord is going to be a hundred times better than that. That's what Lazarus was experiencing. (coughs) Now as to the second destination. I shared the parable of the rich man and Lazarus with a fellow businessman, and when I finished, he said, there ain't no hell. Now this guy's pretty intelligent and knows a lot. I'm sure he has thought it through and come to that conclusion. If God is good, why should there be a hell? So I had to decide if I should take this businessman's reasoning for there being no hell or believe Jesus that there is. Whose authority should I go with? At the end of the conversation, I told him the rich man was surprised to find himself in hell. As one friend told me, the thought of hell is emotionally sticky. No one cares to think about such an awful place or of the people we know going there or of ourselves possibly going there? Do you have a friend or family member who has died and possibly found himself in hell? Do you want to go and be with them? Several years ago, a fellow Christian vendor at a powwow told me about how he went into a bar and confronted a well-known rodeo celebrity with the question, where will you go when you die? Pausing and then waving his hand around the table, he said, I think I'll go to hell to be with my friends. And they all laughed. But as Swind- Chuck Swindell says, hell is no laughing matter. There are no friends in hell, only torment. What would your friend or relative in hell tell you? Same as the, as the rich man don't come here, repent. Save yourself from this. Give in to Jesus. What will it take to convince us to do that? Someone coming back from the dead? Jesus said the scriptures are sufficient to show you the way, and that is what you hear from this pulpit Sunday after Sunday. We have two pastors that preach what the word says, not their own ideas, but the whole counsel of God. Most people would be surprised to find themselves in hell. At the Texas State Fair, there's a booth where Christians challenge hundreds of fairgoers with the question, where will you go when you die? Ninety percent say to heaven. When asked what is their basis for thinking that, most say, because I'm basically a good person, I've done more good than otherwise, eh, wrong. The Bible says, if we offend in one part of the law, we are guilty of all of it, and the soul that sins shall die. Proverbs thirty twelve says, there are those who are pure in their own eyes, but are not cleansed of their filth. You may have heard Garland's story about a man going to heaven, and at the gate, St. Peter tells him, no one enters without a score of 100. 100. What have you done to qualify? And the man thinks and responds, I've always tried to do what is right. I said my prayers every night before bed. I loved my family and supported them and helped my neighbor and did honest work at my job. Peter said, "Uh, we can give you four points for that. What else? (laughs) Well, I sang in the choir, served as deacon, gave whatever... Gave whenever the plate was passed and taught Sunday school. Peter said, good, we can give you three more points for that. What else? The man got frustrated and said, well, if it weren't for the grace of God, nobody would make it to heaven. Bingo, you're in, that's the right answer. (laughs) We need to not focus on what we have done, but what God has done. Our works will never earn us a place in heaven. At the North Dakota Winter Show, my preaching assignment gave me an excuse to share this parable with a number of people. After sharing it with a Catholic friend, I paused to think of what to say next. And he said, and the moral of the story is to use your money to help those in need. And As he walked away, I said, no, I don't think that's what the moral is. Later I learned, I thought, yes, caring for those in need is what God wants us to do. But to do the works of repentance without the repentance is to miss the boat entirely. I want you to compare these two healings in Scripture uh, how, and how Scripture was a factor in how the people responded. In the first, in Acts 14, Paul was on his first missionary journey and healed a man, a lame man, at the gates of Lystra. And when the crowd saw that what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Paul and Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you and bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In Matthew 9, Jesus says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Notice that the Jews who knew the scriptures gave the right response to the healing. They glorified God. The men of Lystra who didn't have the scriptures gave the wrong response and had to be rebuked by Paul and Barnabas for completely missing the boat. The scriptures are sufficient to get us to the right place. I have to give a plug here for you parents to get your kids to Sunday school. They need to know the scriptures and have precious little time to get the scriptures into their hearts. Our teachers go to a lot of work to prepare and present materials that relate to their level of learning. Please honor these teachers' work by going to a little extra effort to get your kids to those classes. And come to Sunday school yourself, too. We, we all need scriptures in our hearts. And now back to the parable. <laughs> the rich man had training in scripture. He knew what his brothers needed to do, repent. He knew that that was what he had needed to do, but he had kept pushing it out of his mind until he was surprised to find himself in the place of torment. There was an elephant in the room for him, just as there is for us. And it is the claim that our Creator has on our lives and our need to respond to him. That's my big idea for this message. The elephant in the room is the claim that our Creator has on our lives and our need to respond. The Bible says that all things were created through him and for him. God has ownership of everything. We sang it in the song. in the First. We read it in the song in the First Chronicles passage we saw. All that God owns, all we are and possess. Psalm 24, 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Ezekiel 18, 4 says, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The elephant is always in the room, but most people have become skilled in ignoring it. They become very adept at squeezing around it and pretending it isn't there. you ever watched Macy's uh, Thanksgiving Day Parade, how the, uh, the commentators there talk about thanking one another? And uh, they ignore the presidential proclamation to give thanks for all the bounty he has given us. They avoid talking about God, and they talk about, let's thank each other. They change the focus from God to man. Romans 1.25 says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. They deny his power, his involvement, even his existence. We are probably the richest generation ever, one of the richest. And uh, we have more wealth than most any other, but anybody else in the world? We Americans have it and most anybody else in history. We have uh, indoor plumbing and we have cars and we have air conditioning and all kinds of uh, things that people did not have before us or elsewhere. So, we can probably identify with the rich man's state more than we can in Lazarus's state. How can we, how can a rich man uh, reach the right destination? Why is it so hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven and to respond to the Creator appropriately? Aren't riches a sign of God's blessing? The proverb says, Honor the Lord with thy substance, where the first fruits of all thine increase. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty, and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. But, as we learn from the parable of the sower, there's a deceitfulness of riches that chokes God's word out of our lives. The rich man took comfort in his riches. He knew repentance was necessary. But the deceitfulness of riches got his attention, and he built a bigger room for his life so the elephant wouldn't be so noticeable. Another rich man, the rich farmer, built bigger barns to store his bumper crop. Then he sat back to eat, to drink, and be merry, and enjoy his accumulated wealth. But that night he died, and he lost everything, having made no preparation for the afterlife. Luke 12:21 summarizes, So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Luke 14, 24 says, For whoever would save his life would lo- lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. The rich men in both these cases were seeking to save their lives with riches, just as we might be seeking to save ours by accumulating wealth, insurance policies, retirement accounts, annuities, service contracts, etc. The rich farmer focused on himself and not on responding to his creator. Another rich man, the rich young ruler, was required to sell everything, give it all to the poor and follow Jesus, and he went away sad. He wasn't willing to stop serving wealth to serve God. Now here's a good example of a, of a rich man in the scriptures, Zacchaeus. He was a short tax collector who everybody despised he climbed a tree to see Jesus passing by and was overjoyed to learn that God would accept him though no one else would he repented and to show his sincerity gave half his goods to the poor and made restitution for any defrauding he might have done the poor widow who threw two coins into the temple treasury also showed a heart devoted to God by putting in all her living compared to those who gave larger sums out of their abundance. The Lord sees the heart. Randy Elcorn, in his this 500-page book on money, possessions, and eternity, uh, it, it is a thorough and level-headed treatise on the topic, which the title states, and I've worked my way through it couple pages at a time while spending time in the reading room at home. You have one of those in your room, in your home too, don't you? Alcorn recommends that we put our trust in God and not in money by fully, not fully funding our retirement account, but putting that money to work for the Lord and leaving room to trust God and not just money during our, our retirement. 1 Timothy 6 says, "As for the rich in this world, charge them not to be haughty, but to set their hopes on, on God, not on uncertain riches. God who gives us everything to enjoy." As we have seen, we are managers of God's money. It isn't really ours. Halcorn says that some people have a money manager for their financial affairs. We are God's money managers. What would you think if you found out that your money manager left all your money to his children? Alcorn speaks against leaving much wealth to children for it often ruins them. He wrote a smaller book, a Christian classic called The Treasure Principle. It was required reading it here at Cornerstone under our first pastor and each family received a copy. I've ordered two copies to put in the library so you can read it too. I've read it twice, and the second time was just as fresh as the first time. In Luke 16, a few verses up from the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus taught no servant, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. They figured, look at us, we're doing both, we're serving God and money. Now whose authority are you going to accept? Jesus that you can't serve both God and money, or the Pharisees that you can? The Pharisees, being interpreters of the law, had figured it out that if you do certain practices and follow certain rituals, you would be pleasing to God. But man cannot invent who God is and what he finds acceptable. We can't say the afterlife is logistically unlikely and there ain't no hell. We have to accept God for who he is and what he has revealed to us. Jeremiah says, an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so, but what will you do when the end comes? We have to face reality. If we don't face it now, we will face it in the end. To reach the right destination in the afterlife, we have to be rich toward God. We have to serve God and not money. We have to acknowledge God's claim and ownership of all we are and all we have and be free in Christ instead of slaves to sin. Let's get to the right destination. Let's make the right response to our Creator. The rich man said, but if somebody comes back from the dead, they will repent. But somebody did come back from the dead. Jesus did, and there's a great deal of proof for this. Why do so many people not believe? Like the Israelites, they have stiff necks and hard hearts. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. We loved darkness rather than light. Come to the light. God is for you, not against you. He sent his son to die in your place for your sins, so you don't have to go to the place of torment, but instead, in the coming ages, show... Be shown the immeasurable riches of his his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What Jesus has done is a free gift. It won't cost you anything, and you can't earn it. Yet, it will cost you everything. Come to him. And please tell one of the leaders in Cornerstone about your desire to have Jesus in your life. We want to pray with you and for you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your precious and very great promises by which we can escape the question that is in the world because of